Ready to hear an amazing word from God? Yes. This is, this is um, going to be a fun one. Every week, uh, I, I start out writing my message by just looking at the section of scriptures that, that in my mind, we're going to teach on. And then I start putting things down on paper and start doing my exegetical studies, start writing down all my backgrounds and things like that. And then I just start praying that God would just direct where this goes. And in a section like this week, we're going to be talking, we're in Romans chapter 2, and Romans chapter 2 could easily just be said it's a continuation of chapter 1. He goes a little bit more in depth into it, but in essence, that's kind of what it is. But in the process of praying that God would, would guide where he wanted me to go, um, he, he really convicted my heart to, to stop and kind of spend a little time on a, on a part of this uh, that's not often talked about. So um, a lot of churches, um, for fear of being accused of, um, of teaching fluff subjects and like throwaways, you know, we're gonna, I'm going to risk that today and we're going to talk about wrath and repentance and, uh, and sin and different things like that. So we're going to talk about the light subject of wrath. And so I hope nobody, <laughs> nobody like, you know, says, ah, he's just a fluff just a fluff preacher. He's afraid to tackle the hard subjects. Um, we might even throw some repentance in there, you know, just for, just for fun. Um, God's word is so good. You know, it's, it's easy to, if you're on the outside looking in, you hear things like wrath and repentance and judgment and things like this. And it's easy to think, oh, man, that's just harsh. That's going to be a hard message. And in fact, I even do that like, oh, how am I going to bring life to this message? But I don't have to, because God already did. If you read the gospel, if you read the entire Bible front to back, and you find any of it that's condemning, you're reading it wrong. If there's any of it that's heavy and hopeless, and uh, you're reading it wrong. And I want to show you that even when we're talking about a subject like wrath, which, how do you put a positive spin on wrath, Right? A lot of that comes from just our misunderstanding of really what that means, of either what the word itself means or what God's heart behind it is. And so that's what we're going to tackle today um, as we go into Romans. So again, if you haven't been with us for, for a couple weeks, this is uh, week three uh, of our Roman series. And um, Romans, in a nutshell, is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing a letter to the church in Rome. And he's basically instructing them from afar because he can't make it personally. And he's giving them a, a rundown of the gospel, basically the, the largest single collection of theological concepts, which is why it's a fun one to teach through um, because there's so much in there. But I want to set the stage for what his letter, um, why it's written the way that it's written. So again, if you haven't been here last week, I kind of talked about to imagine, if you will, that you guys are the Church of Rome. And the Church of Rome is made up of a couple different groups of people, okay? It's made up of Jews, Jews by, by culture and by heritage, and generationally they've been brought up in that Jewish culture. They are Jews who have heard the good news of Jesus, and they have become followers of Jesus Christ, okay? So that's one half of the room. They still consider themselves Jews, by the way. They still, if you'd ask them, they say, we are, we are Jews. 
who know of Jesus Christ and, and he is the Messiah and we're following him. He's the fulfillment of everything they've been taught. So they consider themselves Jews still. Then we have the other side of the room who are these converts, these Gentile converts or Greeks is kind of the general term sometimes the Bible will use, but they are people who maybe, maybe last week they were worshiping pottery and this week they're worshiping Jesus. They've, been, they've come from backgrounds all over the place. Who knows where they were last week or last month or how they were raised, but they have come to know Jesus. And so they're a part of this church too. Okay, so you've got all these people coming together to worship the same Jesus, to learn about the same Jesus and become his disciples, but they're coming from two very different backgrounds. And then even within those, there's many different subgroups of places they're coming from. So they're all over the place with a single goal and a single vision, but coming from different backgrounds. And if you think about that, that really changes how you're going to hear what's taught. You're going to filter that through what you know and what you've been told and how you've been raised. That's just human nature. We all do that. So Paul is trying to write this letter in order to ease some of that tension that tension in the room. Okay, so the Jewish side, they're thinking, I don't know, I've always just decided that this side is the Jewish side and this side is, it just happens. So anyway, the, the Jewish side, <laughs> thank you. Jewish side of the room, they're, they're thinking that this is their thing. Okay, this, he's our Messiah. Okay, he's the one that's been promised to us from the beginning of time. We're God's chosen people. And Jesus is our Messiah. We're being very gracious by allowing these people to come into our room. Now these people, the Gentile side, they're just happy to be here, right? They're just like this is this is great. This is great. This is this. Jesus sounds so wonderful, and he sounds he sounds like such. Um, he, he's a prophet that we can get behind. He we believe that he's the Messiah, but we don't carry generations of baggage that we have to get over in order to accept Jesus. In a lot of ways, it was easier for the Gentiles because they, again, they came from, they're worshiping all kinds of different gods or none at all. And so it's easier to see Jesus as the fulfillment of that and, and focus on that. Whereas the Jews, again, they're, they're having to weigh what they've been taught versus what they're now learning in their hearts. And so it can be a hard thing. Paul's trying to settle those disputes without having to be a referee there, and he's trying to teach and just make sure that everybody grasps the same concept. So it seems like he visits the same things over and over again. He teaches, uh, he teaches on repentance, and he teaches on wrath, and he teaches on self-righteousness, extensively on self-righteousness, because that's something that it was very, very easy, again, for the Jewish side of the room to feel self-righteous. We've been raised in this. We know the law backwards and forwards. We are, we are God's chosen people. And none of that was wrong, but it was very easy for them to then camp out on that self-righteousness and feel somehow superior to the other side of the room, that they were just, we're being, we're being good Christians now by just allowing them even, even in the room. So we're going to start this section in chapter 2. We're actually going to start by picking up where we left off last week. So the last scripture that we read last week is going to be the first one for today. Now, Paul has just gone through and listed an extensive list of things that they were judging each other on. 
Okay, greed and anger and envy and lying and all kinds of different things. Pretty comprehensive list. And he's saying, all these things are things that you're judging each other right now on. And then he says, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So he starts right out by saying, hey, see all these things? all these sinful behaviors, all this stuff I'm telling you about, you're doing these very same things. You try to judge somebody, but you're doing them too. Okay, so this is where he starts out. So when we get into chapter two, he kind of picks up that theme where he left off here. <coughs> or Actually, this is the opening of chapter two. But he's mainly addressing the Jewish side of the room. Okay, now the letter's written for everybody, and everybody can take something away, but he's really kind of pointing at the Jewish side of the room from their perspective. So the reason that he's doing this is because, again, the tendency of the Jews in the room to judge the others based on the law, because they're the only ones that had the law. The other side didn't even have a law. So they're, they're using that yardstick to judge. They consider themselves superior and holder, if you will, holders of like a divine pass, right? We know we mess up. We know we are not perfect. We need Jesus. We need Jesus as our Messiah. But at least we've had the law. At least we've spent our lives trying to do the best we can according to the law. And God has told us from the beginning that we're his chosen people. So we kind of get a pass on that. At least this was kind of the mindset that they're working from. So our very next scripture here, Romans 2, 3. But do you suppose this, O oh man, when you, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Again, they admitted that they weren't perfect. But they had at least known the law. They were raised in it, steeped in it. They knew what they should do. And they saw this new thing coming in as an affront to that. And I'm sure there were many in the room who were thinking to themselves, hey, God, if you're too busy with something somewhere else, we'll be happy to help you with these people. We'll be happy to show them how to follow the law and what the law is and, and help to judge them when they transgress the law. I'm sure there was a lot of that mindset going on. They'd be glad to help because their heart was full of judgment, not only towards one another, but especially towards those Gentiles who were trying to come in to this new thing and to, and to worship Jesus alongside of them. But Paul teaches them that kindness and mercy can really do far more than judgment ever could. Our next scripture here. Or, again, this is a continuation of the previous one. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The kindness of God leads you to repentance. Over the history of the Jewish people especially, but everybody, they knew many times when God would have been right to judge them. And they were judged but they had escaped punishment in most cases. God judged them, but he withheld his punishment. He withheld his wrath. It says right here, 
the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Wait, I thought it was the law that led you to repentance. Does anybody here, or can anybody here, think of an example where quoting the law, throwing down your biggest, thickest Bible you can find and slamming it on the counter in front of somebody led them to repentance? Anybody? Has the law itself ever really, I mean, I'm sure there's probably an example somewhere but has the law in general ever really led anyone to repentance? Okay, they might say, I repent, just get away from me. Okay, but they didn't repent in their heart. What leads to repentance in your heart? And really, repentance in your heart is the only real repentance there is. It's, it's redundant to say in your heart because repentance indeed only is not repentance. It's got to come from your heart. And right here it's saying the kindness of God leads you to repentance. He's teaching them that it's kindness that leads to that. The very same kindness that God has shown you by not smiting you down and starting over years ago. Because they had given him plenty of reasons time and time again to just wipe the slate clean of everybody and start over. But he's saying it's the kindness the kindness of God, that delayed judgment. He's going to withhold judgment and give you a chance to repent. That's what the kindness of God is. In essence, it's delayed judgment. But make no mistake, there will be a judgment. It's easy to say, well, God doesn't judge. God just loves everybody. But no, there is a judgment. And we need to understand that. Romans 2.5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's got wrath in it twice. Wait, I thought wrath was an Old Testament concept that we didn't talk about anymore. Wasn't God angry in the Old Testament and now... Our New Testament God is just warm and fluffy and wears the Mr. Rogers sweater and, you know, he wants everybody to be happy in the neighborhood. Isn't that the difference? Wasn't the Old Testament God different than the New Testament God? Truth is, no. Truth is, Scripture says time and time again that God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. God does not change. His character doesn't change. His nature doesn't change. The things that he thinks and teaches and wants to do in your life never has changed. God doesn't change with the wind or the times or with culture. God's always the same. So why is it that we have this thought that wrath is all Old Testament, hateful, mean God stuff? I think in many cases it's because we really don't have an understanding of what wrath is. I think if I asked you, what does wrath mean? Probably everybody could come up with some kind of a definition based on what they think wrath is, right? Mine would have something to do with Liam Neeson and, uh, and a very special set of skills. That's what wrath looks like in my mind. But we all have some kind of of image of what wrath looks like, but most of them are based on revenge 
and some kind of emotion, usually anger, right? Vengeful anger is what wrath means. And I think probably the majority in this room would boil down that term to vengeful anger. That's not what wrath means. We need to understand that. So first of all, why is wrath even necessary? Why do we have to have that? Okay, we have to have it for one because God is a righteous God. And God does judge right and wrong. And God does hold us accountable for our actions, both right and wrong. But then going even back further than that, why does God even allow wrong? Okay, that's a whole nother series for a whole nother time. But if you think about it, would we understand what light was if there wasn't darkness? Would we understand the concept of hot if there wasn't cold? Okay, there's, there's a concept, it's called duality. Meaning that dark is just the absence of light. Okay, just as cold is the absence of heat. For you scientists in the room, I hope I'm saying that right. Okay, whereas evil is the absence of good. Without good, without God and what he has done in our lives, everything would just be cold and dark and evil. We need to understand that and we need to have both in order to understand the fullness of the gift that God has given us in Jesus. If we didn't know evil, we would also not know good. But so again, this is where the concept of wrath then becomes difficult to understand. Let's go back to the way that it was first written. All the way back in Old Testament, all the way back in the first few chapters of the word where the word wrath is, is really introduced, that word back there is, the word wrath is pronounced shema. Okay, and shema, or kema, I'm sorry, what that translates to in the Hebrew, in that sense, is burning anger. Okay, but it's got a second meaning that's more often used, and it's this, Dispassionate execution of judgment. Dispassionate execution of judgment. Okay, so burning anger is one. Execution of judgment without emotion. Dispassionate. Not cold and unfeeling, but not anger. It's not done in anger. This is the primary way that it's used back there in the Old Testament. So dispassionate execution of judgment. Now, the Hebrew people had seen it used both ways. In their history, when they go back and they had read the Old Testament, they saw in many ways where God's, where God's uh, judgment and his kema was being executed. Okay, he saw it in, in primarily in one of these three ways. Okay, number one was for disobedience of the law. Okay, the law was laid out and the law had specific uh, consequences that came with breaking the law. Okay, a lot of times, if you do this, the punishment is death. If you do this, the punishment is death. And that was laid out several times. It was very clearly, do this. But for every do this, there was a, if you don't, here's, here's the other side. Here's the kema or the execution of judgment that comes along with failure to uphold the letter of the law. Then the second instance where it's used is for disobedience to God's word, specifically to you, 
Okay, we call it that rhema word where God speaks directly to you. But there are instances like, say, 2 Samuel, something very simple and kind of pedestrian-seeming where King David is saying, I want, I want to do a census. He's a king. That should be within his prerogative to do a census. But God sends a prophet to David and advises him against performing a census. A whole other teaching on all that detail. But David says, no, I'm going I'm to do it anyway. So for disobedience, even though David was, was beloved by God, there was still judgment to be had for going against what God was leading him to do. Not the letter of the law, but specific direction and disobedience to that specific direction. It's the same word. And then the last one, and this is kind of the one that I want you to think about here. To exterminate evil in order to consecrate the new land or the new man as holy. Think about when the Israelites were getting ready to enter land of Canaan. Okay? What did God say going all the way back to Deuteronomy? And all this, how, how, did you, how do we see this play out? Where God tells them, I want you to wipe out everybody. Every man, woman, child, donkey, every animal, every everything. Wipe them out. You've seen this theme before, right? How does that fit with a loving God? How does that fit? Well, I can't sit here and explain to you, here's what God was thinking when he did that. But this is the process that God uses to cleanse a land or a person so that the new can inhabit and consecrate that as holy. He does the same thing in our spirits when we receive Jesus. Scripture says the old is gone. Puts it much more kinder and gentler. The old is gone. The new has come. But where does the old go? It's destroyed. The old man is put to death. And in some cases, we see that, and there's not a major change in our lives. But sometimes, when that new man comes, things need to be Consecrated, slates need to be wiped clean. Friends, activities, things we used to do. We put those to death because we know they're not right and they don't fit in the new, consecrated, dedicated to the Lord, holy us, that new man. And so we see that. We see where God uses that kama to cleanse things and lay them, lay them bare, start again, to consecrate as holy to him. So that's, that's the, the way that it's used in the Hebrew. But the Greek word for wrath is a little bit different. It's pronounced orge. And that's actually what Paul is writing in here. Uh, he's writing in Greek, and he uses the word orge. Now, orge means this, an internal disposition steadfastly and constitutionally, by, by your very core, opposed to injustice or evil. That's what that means. And again, it is, it is not emotional, but it is a controlled but passionate grief against sin. Passionate grief against sin. I want you to hang on to that because that's what Paul is trying to get at here when he talks about God's wrath. You are grieving God. God who had given you this gift, this gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ, he has wiped your slate clean. You are, you are holy and consecrated in his eyes and you are ready to go. 
And then when you operate against those things that are being taught to you, it brings grief, a passionate grief to God, thus invoking that wrath. And that's what we're talking about here. So it seems like in many ways that these two definitions are kind of opposing or at least confusing with each other. Because the Jews would have probably thought of it the first way, whereas the, the Greeks or the Gentiles in the room, they're hearing it in the Greek, and it would have meant just that to them. So how do you reconcile this, and are they really at odds? It seems sort of conflicting, but they're not. Because at their core, both definitions point towards Jesus. They point towards the need for a Savior, both to consecrate us as holy to literally wipe our slate clean so that we can start over again. It makes us holy once and for all in the eyes of God, but most, first and foremost, it shows us that we need Jesus. So both definitions of wrath show us how badly we need a savior and how badly we need Jesus. In other words, it grieves God when we willfully break the law that's been written on our hearts. Jesus came to set us free from that. And if we willingly go against that, what does sin do? We've seen many times where sin enslaves us. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We've heard this. So Father God, a loving, loving God, sends his one and only son to die for you, to set you free from the yoke of slavery, to consecrate you as holy, to give you a clean slate, to start over again, to live life in abundance, the life that he wanted so badly for you. He gives you that opportunity through Jesus Christ, and you walk away from it, and you choose to go back under the yoke of slavery. You choose by living sin, by willfully sinning, to walk away from that freedom and submit yourselves to the yoke of slavery again. That grieves God's heart. And church, that's what brings on the wrath of God. Why would you willingly do that? It's not that we invoke God's wrath by our moments, our bad decisions. It's willfully walking in that path, willfully judging somebody else, knowing that we shouldn't, but doing it anyway. Feeling of self-righteousness, and it goes back to that list of things that we, had, that we heard Paul list out. There are many, many things, and it's not making a mistake and then repenting over it. It's that unrepentant sin that we live in saying, I'm doing this, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Church, that's what grieves God's heart. And it's not because he hates you and because he's angry at you and because he's vengeful. It's because he's saying, I gave you this wonderful gift. I sacrificed my son for you. And you're putting yourself back into slavery. Why are you doing that? Fact is, he knows why we're doing it because that's our nature. Galatians 5.1, I'll read it to you. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Now, that was Paul writing to the Galatians, but it's a common theme. Don't yoke yourselves in slavery again. 
Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Don't do it again. And yet they continue to do it. And we'll always continue to do it, which is why we need to constantly be reminded. But the point of all this that I want you to understand is that God's wrath is not done in anger. It's not the angry parent grabbing their child and and dragging them off so that they can spank them and punish them because they embarrassed them. There's nothing we could do to embarrass God. There's nothing that we can do to make him angry at us because anger is an emotion and he loves us too much for that. But he will have wrath against us, which is that it grieves him and it hurts his heart that we walk away from everything that he has done for us. We willingly make that decision. We willingly submit ourselves to slavery. So let's go back to the scripture here really quick. Paul is teaching them, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. He says this over and over again, the Jew and the Greek, the Jew and the Greek, the Jew and the Greek. He's trying to hammer away at that point that this includes everybody. And then he caps it off with verse 11, there is no partiality with God. If you came to know Jesus yesterday or you've known him your entire life, there is no partiality. You are seen the same. He loves you the same. You don't get a pass just because you've, you've grown up in the church. You're not a second-class Christian because you came to know Jesus yesterday. Paul is trying to teach them that over and over again here. There is no partiality of God. And he goes further on to say that your knowledge of the law, again, the Jews are saying, okay, we get that, but we really get it. We get it more than they get it because we've been raised in the law here and we get this. So Romans 2.12, Paul says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Okay, so he's acknowledging that. He said, hey, if they didn't have the law, they'll also die without the law. They don't have it, they'll die without it, but they're still gonna die. And then he goes on and he says this, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Okay, so you have the law, great, but you've sinned under the law too and you're gonna be judged by that very law. So he's saying whether you have the law or whether you don't have the law, you're still gonna be judged the same. And he goes on and he says, you have to do what it says right here, Romans 2.13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are justified or are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. It's not the hearers, but the doers. Does that sound familiar? That's our mission here, James 1.22. Be doers of the law. But how do you, if you just look at this right here, the doers of the law will be justified. Doesn't, isn't that in direct contrast to several scriptures that say not by deeds or works that you're justified, but it's by faith alone? Doesn't it say that? Many times. So how do you justify that with this? The doers of the law will be justified. This is starting to ruminate in their heads, and they're starting to think how do we justify this, especially 
again, the Jewish side of the room who is saying, okay, we, we have the law, so we, we've been trying to be doers of the law. We have Pharisees, we have Sadducees among us who, who keep us in line. We study the law, we know the law, we, we've been raised in this. Okay, we at least have a fighting chance of being doers of the law because we know it. But Paul, we have this whole section of people who don't know the law. We're just now trying to teach them the law. How do they have any chance? And so this feeling of superiority of judgment again starts to rise up in them. Okay, we have a chance of being justified because we know the law. They don't. So in other words, they're saying, ah, we got you, Paul. We're seeing the loophole in your, in your little teaching here. Because unless we teach them the law or share them the law or they, they learn it somehow, they don't even have a chance to be justified. Well, Paul lays it out very clearly for them. I'm going to read this to you. This is Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Paul says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. In that, they show that the work of the law written on their hearts. It's written in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. He's telling them that whether you have the written law or the law written on your hearts, you have that. You have the law written on your hearts. Whether you've known God your entire life and studied the law or not, you have it written on your hearts. Let me stop for a second and ask you, how loving is our God? That not only did he write it down and make a way for his chosen people to recite it and learn it and be taught it since, since the moment they were born, but also he knew there was a whole other segment of people and he wrote the law in their hearts to help guide them and to help keep them safe and to help keep them where they needed to be until such time that, that the Holy Spirit could infill them. But the law was written on their hearts. And Paul's telling them, there is no different. So on that day of judgment, and there will be a day of judgment, the Jews with the law and the Gentiles without the written law but written in their hearts are going to be judged the same. They're going to be judged right alongside one another. And their judge is not the Jewish side of the room. Their judge is Jesus. Being a Jew by birthright is not going to make a bit of difference on that day. And he goes on even further to teach that. Romans 2.28 says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. So he's saying, hey, just because your culture is Jewish, that doesn't make you a Jew. Because you've been circumcised doesn't make you a Jew. It's not what we see. It's who you are inside. And he says this over and over again. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. You can't just put on the trappings and pretend. And he's teaching that to both sides of the room. In other words, God is not a respecter of your parents, of your heritage, of your credentials. God doesn't care a bit about those things. What does he care about? He cares about your heart. 
God wants your heart above all else. He wants your heart to be focused on him, not on the law, not over are you better than or worse than the person next to you. We sing in worship songs, your eyes should be fixed on Jesus, our eyes fixed on you. But that's so true. Because the enemy wants us to get in there and start judging one another. And we lose track of what the true prize is. So Romans, um, let's see. Okay, sorry, I thought I had another scripture. I guess I don't have another scripture here. Oh, yeah, I do. Romans 2.29, sorry. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but by God. So right there, what he's telling him is it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter if you know the law backwards and forwards. But you have the circumcision of the heart, which comes by the spirit and not the letter of the law. So those who are not Jews by birth can become that. And by Jew, he means the chosen people. His chosen people by having the word written on your heart by the Spirit. That's where we are. So when you, hear, when you hear a word like this, teaching like this, it again kind of seems like it's pointing towards a lot of judgment and self-righteousness, but what should our response be to a word like this? Because that's really when you, do, when you teach, you can teach all the scripture, you can teach the, the backgrounds, and you can teach all the meanings of the words, but ultimately it comes down to what's our response supposed to be? And I think when we're trying to figure out what our response to a word like this is supposed to be, let's go back to the author of this letter and think that even though he's addressing it mostly to one side of the room, he's referring to and including the other side of the room, he's trying to get them all on the same page. What is he trying to get across here? So I think what Paul is trying to get across here is the very same thing that we ought to take home from a message like that. And when I was studying it and trying to put together all the pieces into some kind of a coherent um, one-sentence summary and praying that God would show that and illuminate that to me, here's what he gave me. What you fill your heart with today is the measure that God will also judge you with. What you fill your heart with today. So think about that. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and start coming up. Are you filling your heart with love and grace and mercy? Or are you filling your heart with judgment, condemnation of others, sin of many varieties? What are you filling your heart with? because that's what's gonna be used to judge you when that day comes. Can sound heavy and condemning sometimes, right? It shouldn't sound condemning. And it shouldn't sound heavy, it should sound serious. Okay, it's not a light topic. We will be judged. We will be judged by our Father in heaven, but he's gonna judge us through what we give him to judge us against the law written on our hearts and what are we allowing in and what are we not? What are we operating in that we know better? It should be convicting to you. That passionate grief against sin that I told you about, 
I think that's what should be growing in our hearts. A passionate grief against those things that we do that are sinful, that we know because it's written on our heart or because we know it by the letter of the law. Whichever way you know it, you know it. We all have a conscience and that all testifies to us. Whether you're a Christian or not, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit who speaks to you. But even if you're not, that's no excuse because God writes it on our hearts. That's what we should be filling our hearts up with, a passionate grief about that. Now, when we sin, we become a slave to sin. And I think that's what grieves God the most. Because Jesus Christ gave himself in sacrifice for us to set us free when we willingly put ourselves back in that yoke, it's grieving to God. But we don't, I doubt anybody gets up and says, I wanna be a slave to sin again. I wanna, I wanna go sin today, but who wants us to do that? Satan wants us to sin. And he will always be pursuing us and there are always demons that are trying to lie to you. Now, I've mentioned the word demons. If you believe in angels, you have to believe in demons. Both are listed in the word. Both are described in the word. Both are very, very real. And demons, it says, are constantly 24-7 doing battle all around us. Battle for your soul. Battle for you. And there's a fight. And it's by the grace of God that we don't see that going on. Otherwise, we'd never be able to get on with our lives. Again, we're not to focus on the battle. We're to focus on Jesus. Because he's the way that we win this battle. The enemy will come after you and he will lie to you and he will entice you and he will try and show you that adhering to the word of God is too hard to doing those things that you know is right. Okay, I know that that's right, but this thing is so comforting and fun and I just like doing that and it's okay I can just do that a little bit and then I'll kind of come back to the center the enemy wants you to think that that's okay and he's good at lying to you about that but that's not what leads to life and it grieves our father God I don't want to live a life that grieves God I want to live a life that gives him the joy that he has given me a life that glorifies him and the enemy is doing everything he can to stop us all from doing that. But one of the things that Jesus gave us when he died is he gave us the authority over demons. So we don't have to sit here and go, oh, the devil made me do it. The devil can't make you do a thing, church. He can't make you do anything. What he can do is lie to you, and then you make the decision. He can't grab your hand or... And, yank you along and have you do something. He does not have that kind of power. And over demons and their little pokes and their prods and the things that they do to you and their lies, Jesus gave you authority over them. In Luke 10, 19, Jesus says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the schemes of the enemy. Nothing can harm you. Church, nothing can harm you except you. You are the only one that can make the decision to put yourself back in that yoke of sin and slavery. And that's our choice. We can teach over and over again. God can write it on our hearts. We can know good from evil, light from dark, hot from cold, right from wrong. We can know all those things. 
but it's ultimately our choice. But what are we going to choose? I think some of us have made the decision, and the way that I'm going to close this message is some of us have made the decision to hang on to some things that are not from God. And what God specifically highlighted on my heart this time is unforgiveness, judgment. Oftentimes, unforgiveness comes from a place of judgment and self-righteousness because we feel like somebody has wronged us. Somebody has done something wrong in some way and they've wronged us. But the only way we can think that is if we're judging them. We're judging ourselves superior to them or we're judging our motives better than theirs. That's not for us to do. And we hang on to that unforgiveness. And what it does is it grieves God because we're not sitting here saying, okay, I'm, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an adulterer, I'm anything, and I'm okay with that. But how many of us think that holding on to unforgiveness is something that's okay? Because I'm not gonna be hurt again by that person. That person has hurt me too many times before. I'm shutting them out of my life. Are you protecting yourself? Are you grieving God's heart by willfully and knowingly engaging in something that he doesn't want you to do? You're hanging on to judgment and you're claiming that as your own. That goes against God's heart. So what I'm gonna pray for is that God would highlight somebody in our hearts and we all have that person. If you're not thinking of them already, that person that we need to let go. We need to let go of our judgment and our unforgiveness and then we need to repent of that. And I'm gonna pray that over you. So if you would just participate in this with me. Let God show you. When I ask the question, let him show you who you need to forgive. And I'll walk you through a simple prayer of forgiveness and we'll let that go. Just one of the ways that we can grieve God, but I think it's something a lot of us struggle with. So Father God, Lord, we just thank you for, for your power and your grace and your mercy and your love and your withholding judgment. The judgment we so rightly deserve, you withhold that, giving us a chance to repent, giving us a chance to walk in the light and not the dark and not incur your wrath. So Father, I just pray as we're sitting here right now that each one of us, if we have somebody that we need to forgive, somebody that we need to let go of our judgment towards, Father, highlight that person in our minds right now, in our hearts. Show them to us. Whether it's one or many or a place or whatever it is, Father, show that person to us. So church, I wanna walk you through a prayer of forgiveness and you can say your own, or you can repeat this one after me. But it's a very simple process, but you can't just say the words. You have to feel it in your heart because that's where forgiveness comes from. So if you'd like, repeat this after me. If you want, you can say your own prayer. Father God, I lift this person up to you. And first of all, Lord, I ask that you bless them with abundance, peace, and a knowledge of who you are. Father, I repent of ever judging them. I repent of holding on to unforgiveness towards them and claiming judgment as my own. Father, I give them to you. They are your children. They are not rightfully mine to judge. 
So Father, I let go of all anger, all bitterness, all resentment, and all unforgiveness towards them. Father, I choose to fill my heart with love towards them as you have loved me. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, you can say that prayer as many times as you need to over and over again. Anytime the Lord highlights somebody on your heart that you need to forgive. Forgiveness is something that's easy for us to hang on to. But let's go into communion now. Let's go into communion now with celebration. Celebration that we are freed from the yoke of slavery through what Jesus Christ did for us. But also with determination to not allow ourselves to be put back in that yoke. And certainly not to willingly put ourselves in there. Let's do this with joyful hearts, thankful for what he has given us. Amen? Thank you, church.
to move back to the prayer team if you've got something in your life that you want some prayer over. God is here. Beautiful Jesus. He wants to meet you where you need to be met. Whatever that looks like. Sloppy, messy, wherever I'm at. So go ahead and move back there. The prayer team wants to pray with you guys. We just invite you as we continue into worship here. Touch revives the sick and lame. 
worship. We want to invite you guys to stay with us. But if you need to leave, you can be dismissed too. to 
Ashes of your love will always be enough. Nothing compares to your embrace. Light of the
Swallowed up, you swallowed up. 